BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. California is going to start setting aside 40% of all vaccine doses for the state's most vulnerable neighborhoods in an effort to open the state's economy more quickly. The doses will be spread out among 400 zip codes, with a large concentration of them in L.A. County and the Central Valley. Once 2 million vaccine doses are given out in those areas, the Department of Public Health will lower the threshold for counties to move to less restrictive tiers. Counties will be able to have 10 new cases per day per 100,000 residents instead of the current seven new cases per day. It's news that baseball diehards have been waiting for, as Governor Newsom says he's hopeful that fans will be allowed in stadiums come opening day next month. Here's Newsom speaking yesterday at a news conference in Long Beach. We have confidence that when you think forward or look forward was April opening day, where we are likely to be if we all do our job. If we all do our job and we don't let down our guard and spike the ball, wrong sport, but you get the point, then I have all the confidence in the world fans will be back safely in a lot of those outdoor venues. Newsom says the state is in advanced talks with Major League Baseball and county health officials about allowing fans at games. Under current state guidelines, professional sports teams would have to wait until their counties reach the less restrictive orange tier before allowing fans at 20 percent capacity. The state's My Turn COVID-19 vaccination system is facing increased scrutiny across California. That site is the main source for the state's residents to sign up for appointments. According to the L.A. Times, it has serious flaws, making it much more difficult for counties to reserve vaccine appointments for communities hit hard. Here's L.A. County Public Health Director Dr. Barbara Ferrer speaking at a news conference this week. We constantly get reports that people are figuring out on the MyTurn system ways around the eligibility requirement and that, in fact, some people have been allowed, even though they're not eligible, to make appointments. Many wealthy people who aren't eligible for the vaccine have been able to take advantage of those flaws, cutting in front of those who live in vulnerable areas. Health officials in some counties, including Fresno, say they're using their own website until changes are made. 
New research from UCLA shows zip code and race played significant roles in determining how much loan money small business owners in California got from the Federal Paycheck Protection Program last year. KCRW's Ben Gottlieb has more. Researchers with the UCLA Latino Policy and Politics Initiative meticulously went through federal loan data by congressional district, and they found that when it came to securing federal help, majority white communities fared much better than majority Latino ones. It is not easy to apply for these funds. It is not easy to navigate these government programs. That's Rodrigo Dominguez Villegas, one of the lead researchers. When it comes to securing loans, he says, the PPP program did not consider racial inequities, things like language barriers, for example, or lacking a prior relationship with banks or other lenders. The businesses that had the least amount of technical and technological resources had difficulty knowing, first of all, that the program existed and then how to apply. That, Dominguez Villegas says, compounded access issues for many disadvantaged communities and only widened a wealth gap that already existed pre-pandemic. The study suggests some solutions moving forward, things like setting aside loan money specifically for business owners from underrepresented groups, and that those folks are provided help with filling out their loan applications in the future. For the California Reports, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. California Attorney General Javier Becerra is one step closer to becoming the nation's next Secretary of Health and Human Services. KQED Politics Editor Scott Schaefer reports on yesterday's vote in the Senate Finance Committee. From the start, Senate Republicans have attacked Becerra as lacking health care credentials. GOP Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana did offer one concession, though. He is a very good Attorney General. Democrats on the panel, including Michigan's Debbie Stabenow, said Becerra has long been a strong consumer advocate. He's taken on drug companies for their high prices and their role in the opioid epidemic, and he's worked to enforce mental health parity. The 14 Democrats on the committee voted for Becerra, and its 14 Republicans voted against him. His nomination now goes to the full Senate, and if he's confirmed, Becerra will become the nation's first Latino health secretary. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Anti-Asian hate crimes have been on the rise since the pandemic began last year. In Sacramento, an incident at a Chinese-owned butcher shop is under investigation as a hate crime. Now, reporter Sarah Mises Tan looks into how the city's hub for Asian businesses, known as Little Saigon, has been faring and what its future might be. 
On a recent Friday morning, Linda Louie stands outside the Indochina Friendship Temple on Stockton Boulevard, giving out free food to dozens of families waiting in a long line of cars. Freshly steamed uh, sweet rice with mung bean, coconut and vanilla powders. Louie is president of this Buddhist temple, a community hub where she grew up helping after her parents immigrated to this South Sacramento neighborhood from Vietnam. But she adds that the COVID-19 pandemic is exacerbating some issues like crime and homelessness that have always been present in the area. Personally, just to, you know, going up in this area, seeing how much we've been through, how much how hard we work to be where we are or where we were 2019 and, you know, we are here now is a little bit sad. It has, you know, saddened me. Councilwoman Mai Vang, the first Asian-American and Hmong-American woman to serve on city council, recently introduced a resolution to combat some of the racism against Asian-Americans that spiked in recent months. The belief that Asian-Americans and Pacific Islanders are a monolithic group and a model minority perpetuates stereotypes that mask hate incidents, trauma, and disparities within our communities. However, I want to be clear today that what you are seeing across the country, in the state and locally, is not new in our community. Mai Wen runs a nonprofit that serves the area, called Community Partners Advocate of Little Saigon. She says the boulevard has seen a lot of closures. When I was driving through the Little Saigon district, I see a lot of empty, empty offices. She anticipates about a quarter of the small businesses there could close permanently due to the pandemic partially because of early racist rhetoric that squeezed Asian-run businesses. Being that, you know, the virus came from China and being in Little Saigon, we're mainly high population of Asian business owners. To some of the business owners, they felt that they were a target and they noticed that their number of customers decreased and, uh, you know, it, it hurts. Many business owners in Little Saigon miss out on grants and loans because of a lack of translation and outreach. It's this historic lack of resources to the area that has created a situation where many of the immigrants who built Little Saigon are now looking for better opportunities for their children. Andrew Leong studies the evolution of Asian ethnic enclaves at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. He says this transition outward is a pattern he sees across the country. Growing out of that whether it's Chinatown, whether it's Little Saigon, means the upward mobility into professional jobs and into the white suburbs in order to achieve the sensibility of whiteness. But he also adds that the long-term viability of an ethnic enclave like Sacramento's Little Saigon is dependent on either new immigrants coming in or younger generations staying. On the other hand, many in Little Saigon say the boulevard and the immigrants who built it are resilient. Suying Plaskett owns Vin Fat Supermarket, one of the longest-standing Vietnamese-run grocery stores in the area. She says there have been changes, but... We still have plenty of us in here. No matter what, this is still Little Saigon. Plaskett says even if the younger generation of Vietnamese move away, the boulevard will always be a hub for their community. For the California Report, I'm Sarah Mises-Tan in Sacramento. PG&E's newest CEO, Patty Poppy, spoke before state utility regulators yesterday for the first time. In January, she took the helm of a company that pleaded guilty last year to killing 84 people in the 2018 campfire, which destroyed paradise. 
Poppy revealed that it took some convincing to get her to take the job. I'll just tell you, I said no a few times. <laughs> but um, I'll tell you also that after watching uh, the Paradise videos, um, the ABC 10 news series, um, seeing the photos of our uh, customer payment offices and bucket trucks that have been vandalized by angry customers. Poppy continued, that is not how a community or a state should feel about its local utility. The new series she mentioned was reported by Brandon Riddiman of ABC 10 in Sacramento. He joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. So, um, first of all, just reactions to hearing the PG&E CEO uh, name check your reporting um, as she appeared before utility regulators for the very first time. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to hear that. Um, we've been trying to get PG&E executives to talk with us about some of the finer points of what we've found for the better part of, oh, couple, two, three years now. Um, so it's good to know that the incoming CEO has taken notice. Um, you know, our our overarching bent here has been to pursue PG&E uh, for what it is, which is a two-time now corporate felon. Um, you know, they they deserve to be covered uh, as the perpetrator of crimes because that's that's what they are. And in fact, as you know, they're on probation right now for, for the first of those. Absolutely. Um, and we also have had a lot of difficulty getting their executives on the record to speak with us about really basic questions about the company's direction right now. Um, you have just this week put out some really interesting reporting about political contributions that PG&E has made. I have to say, I was under the impression that they had been blocked from giving political donations. So please tell us what you found in your investigation. Yeah, so they did face tough questions, PG&E did, um, after our first reporting on the 2018 campaign where politicians exp and campaigns in California took, I think it was more than $4 million uh, of money directly from the company. Um, in probation, the federal judge had uh, called PG&E to s explain itself, essentially, and, and the company said at the time that these political donations were not more important than spending on the power grid, on safety. Um, and yet, uh, our reporting reveals that they did fire up the political giving machine again uh, and gave $2.1 million in 2020. And, and what's interesting about that is part of this money was given while PG&E was still bankrupt, arguing it didn't have the funds uh, to pay cash to the victims of its wildfires that killed more than 100 people and burned tens of thousands of homes to the ground. Where did this money go? Uh, wh what kinds of political causes are we talking about? Yeah, so the the bulk of the money goes to political action groups and and political party organizations. That was 1.6 million of the 2.1 million that they gave. Um, the biggest group there is something called CLAB, the California Labor and Business Alliance. It's PG&E, Chevron, and a handful of interest groups. Um, PG&E funds about a fourth of that group's activities, and they turned around and spent it in seven different uh, state legislature uh, races, uh, buying TV ads on behalf of candidates and the like. Uh, but there were also donations directly in the races of 17 members of the state legislature. Um, most of those went directly to candidate campaigns, and they were smaller amounts. 
but there is one outsized one in the Bay Area, which is Dave Cortese. He's a newly elected state senator um, out of Santa Clara County, and they spent $75,000 on his race. Now, that's more than the maximum under state law that you can give to an official campaign. So instead, they gave it to something called Valley Neighborhoods United for Dave Cortese. Um, he insisted that he didn't know about that donation. He was one of only two uh, members of the legislature to respond to our questions. Um, he said he didn't know about it and that he was shocked um, that they had spent independently to help his efforts. Do you know if he's open to giving that money back? Well, he's not in a position to give it back technically because the group isn't controlled by his campaign. And he pointed that out. Our follow up to him was, you are perfectly free to disavow this money. Um, you know, if a, if a criminal is spending money to help your cause, you're perfectly free to go to a microphone or send us an email saying, knock that off. I don't want my friends taking that money. Um, that email did not uh, get a response. Well, thank you for your reporting, Brandon. Brandon is with ABC10 in Sacramento, and he's done a series on PG&E called Fire Power Money. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Thank you very much. And firepowermoney.com is where you can watch all our work. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured. Open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere, and College Futures Foundation, supporting KQED special broadcasts from college campuses and other higher education reporting. Learn more at collegefutures.org. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, March 4th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.